Hi, and welcome to the Family Brain Podcast. This is a podcast dedicated to the glorious and messy world of family life and mental health. I'm your host, Megan Gibson. I'm a licensed clinical social worker with a private practice in Austin, Texas. I try to keep it real, and I invite guests who I think might help us navigate this journey of being human. Thanks for listening. Today, I have Emily Klein joining me on the family brain. Hi, Emily. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you about your upcoming book, The School of Hard Talks. When does this book get published? Do you know yet? It is going to be published, available wherever books are sold on April 4th, but I actually just got my copy yesterday. So it's oh, right that's here. so exciting. Yeah. That's really so fun. So as you can see, it's a quick read. It's not a huge um, tome. And I hope people, yeah, learn from it, like it, have fun reading it. So I would love to hear, so the it's the School of Hard Talks, How to Have Real Conversations with Your Almost Grown Kids. And I have some almost grown kids and there's so many good points in here. And I just wanted to see, hear more just sort of about your background and how you came to this work specifically. Sure. So I am a psychologist and um, I've worked with every population, but I really found uh, my home, I think, working with adolescents and young adults. And I kind of came to it actually from a somewhat unusual angle, perhaps, um, because my actually when I go to work um, at Boston Medical Center, I co-direct a clinic um, for young adults who are experiencing psychosis. So people who have um, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or a substance-induced psychotic disorder. Um, and we see a lot of teens and young adults um, because that tends to be when these problems first crop up and declare themselves. So we're not just treating the individual, we're really, really treating the family. And um, I found that that really was my home clinically was working in doing family therapy or parent coaching um, and parent education around these illnesses with these families who are obviously in crisis. I mean, the biggest crisis they'd ever dealt with, um, usually when people come to see me. So I try to be mindful and respectful of that, that an ordinary day for me at work is like the worst day of someone else's life. Um, and, but so many of the parents that I worked with, I would started to teach them this skill set called motivational interviewing, which I find very helpful when I'm working with teens and young adults. And it's really a therapeutic skill set that focuses on how to talk to people about behavior change in a way that doesn't make them defensive and annoyed. It doesn't make people feel like you're criticizing them. Um, it's really just very open and exploratory and, and tries to really build a partnership around the possibility of trying something new. And so I, I found this skill set so useful. I was teaching it to the parents in my clinic. I actually got started doing a research study to study, you know, what impact does this have on families if I teach them these skills? And more and more the feedback I was getting was very enthusiastic, but also, like, why did my kid have to go through this crisis for me to learn these skills? Like, I could have used this with my other kids. I could have used this 10 years ago. 
Um, and that really is what led me to start branching out and to write a book for everyone, you know, yeah. just thinking these are useful skills for families. I love that. It's funny. Cause I think about, I started the family brain and the name, the family brain came from my own work with kids and families and just how the family system is oftentimes like the most impactful place to intervene and oftentimes the hardest. So like somebody will bring their child and be like, here's the problem. Here's the child, put them on the, on the shelf and, you know, fix the problem. And, um, what's interesting to me, as you were talking, I was thinking, I feel like sometimes why people, it takes that long for people to get the help is because it has to get to a point of crisis sometimes for people to be like, oh, maybe we need to do something differently. It's hard to like change your own individual behavior unless there's a real push. And, but what I like about this is in reading your book, I feel like there were pieces. I mean, I was like, oh, yep, that's happened. That's happened. There's so many smaller, it's not psychosis. It's not being in the hospital, but it's like that like um, raised elevation, like kind of crisis point that happens in my family that kind of calls up your senses to like, okay, I better pay attention. Like I better take a look at what I'm doing. Yeah, there's a lot of escalations that can happen um, every day. And, you know, we have this phrase that I hear all the time from parents that, well, I'm just going to put my foot down. Um, And, you know, my answer to that is always like, well, you know, what does that look like for your family? Um, Because a lot of the families I talk to, they've tried eight different ways of putting their foot down and they haven't found something that is successful in terms of actually moving behavior. And it kind of doesn't matter whether you're talking about like putting away your laundry or not smoking marijuana or taking medications that are prescribed, you know, the same dynamics and the same power struggles can emerge when the stakes are low and when the stakes are really, really high. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's so true. And, um, I just was thinking about myself as like, it's, I wish I could practice on really, really small things, but it almost seems like my brain doesn't like get called to attention to do something different unless there's a little bit of an issue. Um, so can you walk us through how you introduce people to the motivational interviewing style and how, how you sort of like set the stage for people to be open to it? So it really depends where people are coming from, but when I see families who've really been struggling a lot, um, I often give them kind of a gift, which is my saying, this isn't your fault and you can't control the outcome. Um, And people tend to receive that really, really well because they, I think in our culture, if your kid is struggling, we really believe that it's like our fault, you know, Mm -hmm. and I've been through that as a parent too, feeling like, why can't I just get my kid to listen? Um, And, you know, the teacher's calling you like, well, you need to talk to them. And I'm like, I'll try. Right. I always (laughs) say now we're working on it. We're working working on it. Yeah. It works really well because it shows that I'm paying attention. I'm not just like whatever, but anyway. Yeah. And I don't think that parents are helpless. Obviously, I wouldn't have written a book about how to talk to your kids about stuff if I didn't think that parents could make a huge difference. 
Um, and at the same time, we're not in control and we just simply cannot control everything that our kids do. Um, and if you think about, you know, your own self and maybe your siblings, um, and how different people can turn out, it's just obvious to me that parenting, family culture is not everything. And there's just individual differences in, in the choices that we make in our lives and in how our personalities and our preferences get expressed. And so I usually start with that. Um, and parents usually experience that as a relief because they have been blaming themselves um, for for whatever their child is going through, whatever led them to come see me. Um, and But then I also say, but there's a lot you can do. Um, so I'm glad that you're here and it's the right thing that you're here because there's a lot that you can do to try and create a good environment for your kid at home. And a lot of it is very unintuitive. You know, your kid isn't struggling because you're a bad mom or you don't need remedial parenting classes. You're not in parenting detention, parenting summer school. What you need are some ninja tactics Yes, (laughs) because your kid is really going through something and you are being called upon to support them in a way that is not intuitive and that, you know, as clinicians, we train for years and years to get these skills and parents are just in the deep end all the time. Right. Well, and I will say as a clinician, as a therapist, I I noticed a couple of times in your book, you say, parents, you are not therapists. I'm like, I am a therapist and it's still really, really hard for me because like you said, it's not always the thing that can be the most useful isn't always like our, what our initial reaction would be. You know, you kind of have to, you kind of have to move away from some of those tendencies. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the philosophy of the book and of motivational interviewing in general is about, um, accepting that lack of control of outcome, you know, that you just simply cannot control another person's behavior, even if you love them, even if you care about them, even if they're not making good decisions, um, those things may all be true. And still, we have limited say over what people do when they're not in the room with us. And as clinicians, you know, of course that's true. That's just self-evidently true that when somebody comes to see me for therapy, they're spending 50 minutes with me and six days, 23 hours in 10 minutes, not with me Mm. in a given week. Right. So I can't control them. Um, And the sooner that I kind of am honest about that with somebody, the faster we can create a partnership that allows us to talk honestly about what they are willing and are not willing to try and why, Hmm. you know, and we can honestly explore their goals, their motivations, my recommendations and why my recommendations do or don't work for that person. And parents are kind of in a similar spot when it comes to as kids get older, you know, once they're 16, 17, 18 years old you have limited control. You may say you're not allowed to do this and you just don't know what happens when, when they leave the house, you know, or you can track them on life 360 or find my iPhone. Um, but they may say, Oh, I forgot my phone. I don't know. Right. It well, just happened. 
you were saying you had listened to one of my earlier podcasts about spicy kids. I mean, and that's the thing. All kids are different too. You know, you can have somebody like, oh, you should just tell, tell your child to do that. Like, oh, I didn't think of that. You know, I mean, some kids really respond well to like very clear expectations and some it's much harder. Yeah. And I, I don't want to minimize that at all. I think it's such an important point because there's kids who are, they really, they really want to do the thing that their parents suggest to do. And that's awesome. And, um, you know, my kids aren't this age yet, but I suspect that I have one like that. Mm. Um, and then other kids, they're just, they question everything. They want to follow their own compass. Um, and they're going to do what they're going to do kind of regardless of your preferences. And so, you know, my book may be somewhat more for those kids, though I think it is useful in terms of having a deeper relationship and more honest conversations with anyone. Yeah. So when you talk with parents, what's sort of one of the first things that you try to get them on board with or try to get them thinking about in their communication with their kids? So one of the first concepts that I talk about with people um, and that's in the book is this idea of the writing reflex. So this means it's a term, we call it like a reflex because it's so automatic Mm -hmm. in terms of what you want to do when you see somebody who you care about, who's struggling or suffering or making a self-destructive decision. Um, We want to help them. We want to fix their problem. And that may take the form of like jumping in and trying to fix the problem for them. Um, Like, oh, let me call your teacher and just, you know, make sure she understands that you have, you know, extra practice for swimming this week before the big championship. And let me just make sure that she gets that and isn't going to give you so much work. So that's kind of jumping in and trying to solve the problem for somebody um, or giving advice. Like, well, have you tried this? Have you tried this? You need to do this. Um, or minimizing the issue and saying, oh, you're so worried about that. Don't worry. It's not a big deal. You know, and I think that comes up more with our kids' social dilemmas when they worry like, oh, I'm the only one who doesn't have a boyfriend or I didn't get invited to this party. And it feels like a really big deal to them and to an adult who's not in that world. It's just like, I don't get it. It doesn't seem like a big deal. Yeah. Um, so that's the writing reflex. And it's that that impulse to help that manifests as trying to solve someone else's problem or telling them. It's not a big deal. You shouldn't be so worried about that. Um, And even though it's very well-intentioned and it's very intuitive, like everybody does it, um, it it tends to get on people's nerves. And it especially tends to get on teenagers and young adults' nerves because they hear their parents' advice as criticism. You know, and you say, oh, have you tried this? you're just, we're just genuinely trying to be helpful and make sure that they've, you know, tried all the good solutions, but they're hearing it as, um, you think I'm dumb. You don't think I can do this myself. You are trying to involve yourself. I want to handle it. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the first concept is that this writing reflex is universal and it kind of gets in the way of good conversations that are more sort of collaborative and honest and, and with both people kind of talking and and partnering together around, around solving a problem. Yeah. I, um, I am teaching a child to drive right now and the writing reflex is very prominent in that car. It's, it's so, it's like such, it's like 
there's a stop sign, there's a stop sign, there's a stop sign, you know, it's like, and it's like, but that I feel like is just a very concrete example of what we're kind of always doing. It's like that we see that they're maybe doing something that maybe we wouldn't advise. And like, how do we kind of give them a little bit of room without jumping in too soon? But it's so hard. You just want to, you want to keep them from the mistakes when the mistakes are often what makes them grow. Well, in blowing a stop sign, I mean, it's yeah. not good. <laughs> not that my Scary. child would ever blow a stop sign. This is like a hypothetical, of course. Right. right. Of course. Of course. Um, yeah. No. And the mistakes can be scary. And sometimes I've made the mistake um, when working with parents of bringing up a hypothetical that to me sounds like not a big deal. And they're like, oh, I would never let them do that. You know, just something like going to a party or quitting a sport or something like that. Um, because we we have a very specific sense of our kids and the dangers that lay in their path. And it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the writing reflex is one of the first concepts. What are some of the other concepts that that you talk to people about? So I think the most important skill that's kind of the building block for everything else, um, once you've learned this concept of the writing reflex and just learning to recognize it in yourself and when it might be interfering with having a real conversation, um, the next skill is reflections. And reflections um, is just a simple, simple speech act where instead of saying what you think, you repeat back what you think you heard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very simple. Most people think they know how to do this, but it's it's surprisingly hard. I find that when I work with people who are learning this skill, whether they're medical students, psychiatry residents, psychology students, or moms and dads, um, everybody needs a little practice with it. So it's definitely not intuitive. Um, but the idea is that when your kid comes to you and says something like, oh, I hate my teacher, that, you know, your writing reflex may be to say, let's switch you into a different class or last week you liked her. Now you're against her. What are you talking about? Um, but instead to say, you hate your teacher. Did I get that right? Mm-hmm. And just to kind of repeat back what you think you heard to get the other person to elaborate and to kind of hold up that mirror to mm-hmm. our kids so that they can look in it and decide, is that an accurate reflection? And when you do a good reflection, usually it gets the other person talking. And I find that with people who are upset or aggregated, especially teens who may be prone to like catastrophic thinking, um, that they will usually walk themselves back from the most extreme versions of their statements. Like, what would that look like? Like, like I hate my teacher. Well, maybe I don't hate her, hate her. I just, I had a bad day like that. Kind exactly. Of exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes so much sense. I, um, I, I feel like sometimes it, no matter how many times I kind of, it's like these, some of these things that for me, I know to be true, that that is more helpful than just telling someone something. It's like you said, it's, it's not necessarily intuitive to do that. 
how do you get people in the practice of doing that? Like, how do you get people to like kind of catch themselves? Well, I am a big proponent of fake it until you make it. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I work with people, whether again, because I teach these skills to, I'm a professor at um, Boston University School of Medicine. So I'm teaching these skills to students all the time. And I drill them, you know, okay. So if your patient comes in the room and says, I've already tried to quit smoking, what do you say? Yeah. I make sure they got it. I give them a well, million examples. Tried to quit smoking? Is that, do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. But you want your voice to kind of go down and just be yeah. contemplative. Like, oh, so you've already tried this. Okay. You know, <laughs> okay. um, and then I, I tend to do the same thing with, with parents. So I'll just ask them like, what are the kinds of things that, you know, tend to activate your writing reflex um, and see if they can come up with any, any ideas. And then I often kind of role play and I pretend to be their kid. Oh, <laughs> say, oh you know, um, I hate school or, you know, it's not fair. My sister never gets in trouble or things like that. Um, but I think it's just important to try it once mm-hmm. and then come back and we'll talk about it because it's not something that, you know, is going to be a 100% switch for anybody, um, especially overnight. But I'm always just curious because I'm always learning too. So especially if somebody's skeptical, I say, well, see if you can find a moment to try it and then try and remember what happens and we'll talk about it because I want to see if this is a good fit for your family or not. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I'm going to try it this afternoon and just see what happens. Do it. Yeah, I'm in. I'm, I'm I'm sure I will have no shortage of scenarios to to deal with. <laughs> that's right. And that's the other thing I always tell, you know, sometimes parents are like all in on the approach, but then the actual moment comes and goes and they have that moment later when they're like, oh, dang, like I should have done a reflection. Um, and that's what I always say. Like, there's no shortage of opportunities. You'll always have another, another one coming down the pipe pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah. So what are, what do you find to be some of the biggest stumbling blocks for families when they're trying to learn this approach? Like, are there any sort of typical things that can tend to get in the way? I mean, I think it's our anxiety as parents. I think it's our fear, you know, in our love for our kids and our are just genuine, wholehearted desire for them to be well, you know, and it's nothing like to laugh at. It's just true. It's like, I don't want my kids to have to suffer, um, whether it's something big or something small. I want them to, you know, be able to get good grades in school and make friends and be safe and not get addicted to drugs. Terrifying things can happen to our kids. So um, I think that's really the biggest stumbling block is um, that temptation to try and just exert control, you know, and I know you've talked about this on other episodes of the podcast. It's like, that is always there. And it's very tempting to just say, you know what? You're not allowed to X. And if I catch you doing it, you're grounded. And that's not a bad approach, by the way, like that's fine. And it will work for some kids. Um, and for other kids, it's just going to lead to kind of power struggle, secrecy, not being able to communicate um, or just 
straight up lying, you know, covering your tracks. Yeah. Well, I think that that's, that's why that reminder that this is not your fault, you know, is so important to remind parents because every scenario is just so, so different. And, um, I just think that that can go a long way in sort of helping reduce some of the anxiety that people might face. Right. Because I think that, um, a lot of that desire to control also comes from being worried about like how other people are going to judge us, you know, whether it's grandparents or extended family or teachers or our friends, but just worrying that, you know, if I don't handle this well and my kid doesn't, you know, get into this college or quits this sport or, um, you know, has to take a mental health leave from college or something like that, you know, then people, it will reflect poorly on me. Yeah. And I think that's, that's very tough. And I think everybody struggles with that. And, um, you know, of course we can be there for our kids and try to support them. Um, but ultimately it's, it's their life and it's, it's not our life to live. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, that's deep. <laughs> I know. It's so hard because it's like, I believe you when you say it, right? You know, what I find to be really challenging as a parent is when kids are really little, it really is like, it is, their life is our life because it's like, you are tracking how many times they go to the bathroom. You're tracking how many bottles, you know, like you're so, it really does depend on you. And then yeah. they're this slow transition. And then it's like real quick trans, you know, like it's like slowly, slowly. And then all of a sudden we're supposed to kind of let go a little bit more and be more reflective and, you know, that could, and it's a hard switch. It's a really hard Mm -hmm. switch to make. Um, and I know you're right, but it's just really hard. (laughs) It's hard to sort of let go of that control piece when really kind of have to do it in the early days. Right. And I think it's so exactly like, it's so hard not to, you know, if you've been, I mean, I'm so guilty of this, even with my young kids, it's like, I am thinking of, you know, just seeing my daughter, like obviously need to wipe her nose. And of course she's like a preschooler. So, but sometimes instead of being like, Hey, the tissues are over there. I just walk over to her and I wipe her nose. Right. Like I just do it. Cause that's what we do as parents. Um, so I do think some people are really, really kind of good at this from early on of kind of not, you know, they, their writing reflex is maybe a little bit weaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's probably downsides of that. You know, their kids might feel like a little less, you know, nurtured or whatever, but then they have the upside of really getting to try things for themselves and succeeding and failing on their own terms from an earlier age. And then for the rest of us, you know, definitely me included, it's like such a struggle to not just jump in there and fix the problem. It is. I was telling somebody recently, I feel like there's like almost a postpartum that happens in the teen years where you kind of like not postpartum depression, but like postpartum transition in the same way as the early years with having a baby of like, how do it's like a whole new life. And then there's a whole nother switch that happens later on, um, of kind of having to do this, letting go and still be involved. I mean, so you're not just saying like, good luck, see ya. 
you know, you're asking them the questions, you're creating the relationship, you're doing the reflections. Um, but it, like you said, it's not intuitive. It, it takes some information to sort of get you there. Right. And you're also, I mean, what's terrifying too, is like not terrifying, also very exciting is you're, you're getting a little bit of your own life back and you're setting the stage for a very long-term relationship with another adult. Yeah. You know, who you, if everything goes well, like hopefully you like each other. Yeah. You're right. It is exciting. It is exciting too. It's, um, it's just every stage brings new things. What, um, is there anything else that you really wanted to highlight that you have in your book or things that you might want people to know about that might be thinking about buying the book and just kind of checking out what you wrote about? Well, I think um, one unique thing about the book and is that when I learned motivational interviewing, there's this textbook that all therapists read if they want to learn the technique and it's called motivational interviewing, helping people change. And it's by two psychologists who created the approach. Um, and, you know, this textbook has been read many, many times. Um, and what I love about the textbook is that a lot of it reads like a screenplay. Mm. Like it's just, instead of being kind of long descriptions of cases and then analysis of those cases, um, it just dives right into the verbal action of, you know, therapist, colon, client, colon, and it goes back and forth. And you see these people kind of spar um, and have power struggles or avoid power struggles. And I always found that very, very compelling. So when I wrote this book, I did the same thing. So there's kind of this cast of characters who you meet in the book who are kind of loosely based on people I've worked with. Um, as a clinician and as a researcher, and they just talk to each other for a lot of the book. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's not just kind of reading about people. It's, it's reading like a play or a screenplay of, of people interacting. Um, and I really had fun writing that, um, mm -hmm. you know, it was almost like getting to write a movie or something like that, yeah. but these people were so live to me as I was as I was writing it and I, you know, and at every turn, it's like, what would this person say mm -hmm. if their mom said this versus this? And you can kind of read how the conversation can diverge and go two different ways, depending on how the parent handled it. Yeah. And that's, what's tricky. I think sometimes people can get resistant or I, I shouldn't say people, I can get resistant to like, gosh, one wrong word. And it's like, you feel like you got, you were tanked. But like we said, there's always opportunities to realize, okay, that was the word that just kind of didn't work. Um, and that helps me so much too, is the, the script and seeing what does this actually look like? Because sometimes I feel like the concepts can get fuzzy in my head about like, well, what does that actually mean? And I do, I love that you, you put out very clear scenarios of what this would look like in real life. Yeah. And there's no perfect way to do it. And people don't have to be perfect to have a good relationship. You know, if you think about the very best relationship, the person who you go to for advice, companionship, the person who makes you laugh most, if that's your best friend or your spouse or a sibling, you know, that person is not perfect. Like they don't always say the right thing, um, but they get it right enough that they have earned that, that place 
in, of honor in your life. And so, you know, we don't have to be perfect as parents at all. And we can, we can say the wrong thing a lot, as long as we just keep trying. Yeah. And I love how you bring up the point about apologizing. I feel like that's a almost like a new thing in our culture. Like I feel like parents several generations out, maybe even just one generation out, there wasn't a lot of apologizing if you made a misstep. Like, hey, I realize what I said hurt you. I'm sorry. Like pretty basic. That is um, an interesting shift. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's happened. And I also think culturally, like different cultures, there's not a lot of apologizing. Um, so anyway, I don't know what culture there, there is a lot of apologizing. I, I don't know of one, but <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but it's, it's true that I think that is a shift and it's not just me. I mean, I've, I've seen this other places too. Um, people saying, Hey, you know, a way to kind of get credibility with teenagers is to admit when you messed up because mm-hmm. they, definitely noticed, you know, (laughs) and they're probably in their room steaming about it. Um, and so you may as well just kind of admit fallibility and say, you know, I think there's one page in the book where I have, um, a stepdad and his stepdaughter and they're fighting about something and, um, it's the part on apology and sort of admitting that you're vulnerable and you're a human being and you don't always know what you're doing as a parent. And he just says, Hey, there's no manual. Yeah. I don't always know what I'm doing. Um, because I think kids do, they kind of respect that. They respect, respect that authenticity from adults. But I do think that's a shift. And, um, I was talking about that actually recently with, with someone in my family who was like, you know, when I was raising my kids, I really believed in, that, you know, once you draw a line, you have to stick to it and there's no going back. Um, whereas I kind of think, you know, once you're in a power struggle, it's miserable. And as the adult with a, a greater capacity for rational thinking and flexibility, you know, it's easier for us as the adults to pivot and be flexible <laughs> um, often than it is for kids. Yes, yes. And I think it also kind of can model to them, like, what does it look like to step back? You know, so then maybe one day they will also kind of, okay, I don't want to be in this power struggle. What does it look like to, to take a step back and, and kind of work through it? Um, yeah, it's, it's all so interesting. Um, what else, is there anything else that you were hoping I would ask you about that I haven't asked you about? Huh. I'm not sure. I guess, you know, you brought up kind of the the cultural piece. And one thing that has been really interesting to me is, you know, doing this work. Obviously, I I mean I grew up in America. I'm an American. Um, I live in the Northeast. I treat patients at a large urban safety net hospital. So I do see patients from all over the world, but it's also a very limited context. You know, I know that the world isn't Boston and Boston isn't the world, Um, but I really enjoy, um, and part of doing the research for the book was trying to connect with parents from different cultural backgrounds and seeing how these ideas landed with them. Hmm. And a lot of people would be like, you know, this really doesn't fit for me and where I'm coming from. 
And, you know, I'd always be curious about that, like which part of it. And of course, if I, I say throughout the book, like if you have a strategy that's working for you, like more power to you, this, this, I'm, I'm assuming that people are reading this book because they're looking for new strategies, you know, and I'm never one to be like, everybody should listen to me, even if they're perfectly happy doing what they're doing. Um, but one thing that would be really interesting was doing role play, you know, and just saying, let's just role play. Yeah. And you tell me, you know, I, I get that the philosophy seems really off to you, but let's do the role play and you tell me which parts you feel like you could never say yeah. to your kid, you know, with where you're coming from culturally. And we would do role plays and I'd be like, okay, so where was it? You know, mm. that was like, oh, that wouldn't work. And people would be like, no, it actually was great. <laughs> so it was yeah. really interesting. Well, I wonder that sort of- maybe just putting it in someone's own words. You know, yeah. it's like I wouldn't say it that way, but I would say it that way, you know? I mean, and so it's like the same, the same, but different. Right, right. So it's like, and that's part of the art of sort of doing good reflections mm-hmm. um, is using somebody's own words. And that comes up all the time in a clinical context. You know, people might be, say somebody's really wrestling with alcohol and the word alcoholic is if you, if they hear that word, they are out of the room. Like you have lost them. Maybe that has some meaning to them. Maybe that label was applied to someone else in the family. Um, and it was a really negative thing, but if you can reflect people's own words back to them, like, oh, so your wife is saying you get carried away. Then you're cooking because they do want to talk about it actually, but you know, part of our job as therapists is to be really attentive to the language that people are comfortable using. Um, and I think the same is true when you're talking to anybody about a sensitive topic. So a teenager might be like, you know, if, if the label is like, you're not doing your homework, you're lazy, that might not be so well received, but if it's like, you're overwhelmed you're having trouble getting things done. Okay. Now we're having conversation, you know, because I'm using language that you're comfortable with. Yeah. Yeah. I was just doing um, a training for my job earlier today. And I was telling the person I was working with that I felt like she was so good at like kind of inviting me into the process. And I feel like that's sort of what part of what you're saying is it's almost like a humility on the side of the parent of like, this is a back and forth. This is not. And I think so often as parents, we can get stuck in the, like, I am the parent bow before, you know what I mean? And it's like, the more we can welcome someone into the conversation, I think the better chance we have of it being received well. Um, But it's not always easy to do. No. And I think, you know, we all have that should voice in our head as parents. Like my kids should just listen to me. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And it's either reflects either they're a bad kid or I'm a bad mom. If that's not happening, they should just listen. Right. And I think it's hard to, you know, acknowledge that voice and then to say, but I know what's going to work here is a little bit more of a nuanced approach. Um, And if I can go in curious um, and not necessarily insisting that my way is the right way, um, then we're more likely to have a good outcome um, but it's really hard when you're putting that judgment on yourself or on your child that you know, they should just listen. Right. Well, and it's in your own mind. And then you hear it from other people too. Why aren't they listening? Or even looks somebody might give you at the store or whatever, you know, you feel it. 
from other places. It's almost like figuring out how to not isolate yourself, but protect yourself a little bit from some of those shoulds. Yeah. Especially if you have a spicy child, you know, and if, um, because other people just maybe genuinely have never dealt with that. Right. And so they have it in their mind that like, well, if you just lay down the law, if you're just firm, if you're just consistent, if you just stick to your guns, then they'll listen. And it's like, well, you know, I'm very happy for you that that worked for you. And you felt like it was all easy breezy, (laughs) but that doesn't work in my house. And you don't know what you're talking about. And thank you very much. Uh, Let's let's just mind our own business here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So true. Um, Well, where can people find more information about you and learn more about your book? Sure. So I'll give people a few resources. So the book is called The School of Hard Talks, How to Have Real Conversations with Your Almost Grown Kids. Um, And it's available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. So people are welcome to check that out. Um, people can also find me at my website, uh, dremilykline.com, D-R-E-M-I-L-Y-K-L-I-N-E.com. And that has a lot of links to, you know, things I've worked on and writing. Um, you can also find me on social, on Instagram and TikTok, um, at learn about Milo. Milo stands for motivational interviewing for loved ones. So, um, you know, we talk about using this technique in clinical situations with kids, um, and with peers, you know, in all different situations. So the, the Instagram and TikTok are called learn about Milo. Um, and people, there's also a free e-course that people can take. Um, and if you just Google the school of hard talks online, um, people can find that and check that out to get a little flavor of what's in the book. Awesome. I'm going to have to check you out on TikTok. I'm going to give myself like five minutes to look at it. I had this (laughs) TikTok really does a good job of keeping you on there. I've got to set a little timer for myself. Otherwise I'm like completely lost track of time. Um, and you know, I'll tell you the secret, which is I don't, I am terrified of looking at TikTok and even looking at your own social can be, you know, there's a lot of ink spilled about how social media is not great for your mental health. So um, I work with some really wonderful Boston University students who kind of take an independent study with me. And so they get to learn the motivational interviewing skills and we create the reels in the posts together and um, we collaboratively manage the account. So it's also kind oh, of a learning kind experience of awesome. for them. Yeah. That's awesome to get the, the younger um, input on the TikTok because it's yes. not yeah. figure out. Exactly. And then also, <laughs> you know, I don't always, message. yeah, I don't need to know how many views yeah. and likes things got either. <laughs> <It's No. just laughs> uh, well, thank you so much. This has been so great talking to you and I'm so excited about your book and thank you so much for sharing your time. Yeah. Thank you. It was wonderful to talk to you. Thanks, Megan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Family Brain. If you've thought of someone you know while you were listening, I would love it if you would share this episode with them. And if you really loved it, you could leave a five-star review. That helps people find the show and spread the word. Thanks so much for listening.